0: This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture.
1: I do feel that when I talk, when I uh, do my proposing of uh, my proposals about how we know I, ha- I have what I'm actually doing is kind of relaying the accents on what they're already doing. And, and uh, saying, look, that's not knowing this is, and you've been doing it all your life. And so mm-hmm. I quickly revert to uh, seemingly lowly, but I think, awesome examples like riding bike or learning to read or playing football or watching football, you know, uh, you know, things that we uh, that are everyday ordinary skills, at least for some of us, (laughs) you know, and uh, you know, I, and I have to um, kind of insist that they uh, tell me a skill and then, Hmm. and then talk it through. So, and that's how I get to relay the accent. And it's really that, that exercise that um, breaks or goes over what your word was hurdle. It it, it just, it kind of sidesteps the hurdle. So you can say, look, you do this all the time. This is cool. It's amazing. It's subsidiary focal integration to use Polanyi's language. And this is knowing So I actually, one of my PowerPoint presentations in the last couple of years, I called How to Ride a Bike. And um, Mm. do you you remember the child book by uh, Robert McCloskey, the beautiful book called Make Way for Ducklings? Do you remember no. that book? No,
0: no. Only, only because my parents didn't read books to me. But that's okay. Well, no, no, you I, need I to just like
1: go buy it because his okay. his pencil charcoal sketches are beautiful from the nineteen forties. You know, Newberry Winter, not mm. Newberry, and all that. So, Make Way for Ducklings is famous, and there is a little boy on a bike in there, and so I took that picture and put it in my PowerPoint, and then you know I I call him Mel because he's going pell Mel, right? <laughs> so uh but then you know get people to to think about riding a bike you know how that works and and then you can get um you can then relabel what it is that they're doing and say look this is knowing you're doing it now you know uh let's now take it into these other goofy questions that you might have that don't seem so goofy um and what does that do to the knowledge as information Uh, mindset. And Drew, um, the if you're talking about bike riding, the knowledge is information paradigm, which dominates our modern age, is the bike rider reverting to look at his foot on the pedal. Mm. (laughs) Mm. And the point is, uh, the whole performance grinds to a halt. And focal information is the very thing that blinds you to the real cuts you off from the real so it's very Hmm. uh, you know you ought to feel that in your gut you know you can't ride the bike and look down at your foot you just can't yet somehow we've ensconced and exalted a model a paradigm of knowing that's focal information
0: That recalls to me. So, we're talking about this, this book that I would say kind of started the revolution amongst Christians and other uh, outside of Christianity as well. Uh, Longing to Know, published in 2003. I was one of your students. Actually, I just graduated from seminary in 2003, right around that same time. Um, but one of the things that I find is that most Christians around my age, so I'm nearing 50, Um, They all know what postmodernism is, or Mm -hmm. at least they have a caricature of it in their mind. Um, But what surprises me is that most of them don't know what modernism is. They don't Mm -hmm. understand what postmodernism was a reaction to. Um, And so it's shocking to me that we are here in 2023 and what you just described as one of the hurdles, knowledge is information, is actually not about uh, postmodernism but it's about a 1940s, 1950s view of knowledge, right? Do you find that this is still prevalent in where you live?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I I really feel, and you and I have mentioned this in passing uh, to each other before, we think postmodernism maybe was over in the 1980s, and it wasn't uh, the success right. uh, at uh, subverting, as it sh- should have been trying to do, <laughs> the, the Enlightenment project, you know? And so the... Mm. It, enlightenment project is, uh, continues to be exalted. You know, we, hmm. you know, we profess knowledge is power you know, <laughs> right. you know, and, and other things like that. And so, and so, uh, I, you know, what, wh- however you use the term postmodern and that's, you know, obviously up for today, debate. And I have to say, I right. think I grew in my understanding after I had written longing to know. After I taught it
0: hmm.
1: for, you know semester after semester in, at Geneva College, um, I, f- I feel like uh, postmodernism was intended as a response to postmodern to modernism, and that res- you know that was a good idea. But I feel that hmm. lots of people out there beca- just because they're stuck in the modernist mindset, uh, I-, I call that certainty or bust. <laughs> Right. So right. so yeah. there's lo- lots of, it, at least in the past, you know, when you were, you know, back in 2003, people were all about certainty, or they assumed that the alternative was was relativism or subjectivism. Right. And I think that that either or is itself endemic in the modernist mindset, and uh, it's still in play. And so what we need is a... a Uh, third alternative and I do call it that in longing to know uh, which uh, isn't a compromise that you know kind of kind of tries to balance one as over against the other I I I, we need to like rip up those dichotomies and start again and that's you know I actually think thinking about riding your bike is what you have to do because Mm. nowhere in a skill do you have either modernism or postmodernism, whatever you call it? You just, you just can't, you can't do athletics or music, you know, or, or any right. of those things, unless you've got a, a really, um, an approach to the world. That's more like what gets described by Michael Polanyi and, um, by longing to know and you in, yeah talking about uh, the way knowing works in the Bible
0: yeah so I think a lot of people are going to hear that and they're gonna say great bike riding athletics laying out for a frisbee which is still one of those sticky uh, examples that you used 20 years ago that uh, hangs around in my brain um, but we're talking about let's let's talk about engineering and science right um, can can you uh, live in that modernist or postmodernist world and still do science?
1: Well, the thing is that uh we what modernity has done is taught us to misdescribe. Hmm. And so even a scientist or an engineer, uh uh they're gonna exalt the linear and and the you know the scientific method, you know, that kind of a thing they're you know so it's like their implicit philosophy uh they're they uh it, it is modernist yet their success goes with subsidiary focal integration these terms that you and I are familiar with that we got from Michael Polanyi and have in, in longing to know so so that's why I say I kind of have to relay the accents so you can see what you're you're actually doing. So, engineering. I have two engineer mm. daughters. I'm you know they. It's just amazing. Mm. I'm very proud of them. You know. Well, it takes uh, breakthroughs of of uh, beautiful insight <laughs> to come up with you know things. You know, you and I with our St. Louis connection. I if you're like me, you just love that arch. That is a thing of mm-hmm. beauty, you know, and it won a contest. <laughs> that's why it's there, you know. So, so um, that's
0: mm.
1: that's engineering, and you know, I now live in Pittsburgh, and and I'm very proud of the fact that all that steel <laughs> came got imported from Pittsburgh, <laughs> you know. So there's this connection to the arch, but so so that's the the point I'm making. There's creativity all over that, but but we have kind of inhaled or or you know it's in our water this this um modernist um caricature of what it is that we're doing when we know which leads you to ask what where would we be as a world and a culture and a society if we had done it right or had, had hmm. been a. Uh, uh, Authentically aware of what it is that we were doing. And you know, as I know, because we both like Michael Polanyi, he said, if science is, you know, a collecting of information, no scientific discovery could ever happen. But it does. Mm. <laughs> so maybe you need right. to rethink what it is you're actually doing when you're involved in discovery. You have to accredit some things uh, that you are relying on and uh, indwelling with. Trust and artistry—they're called clues and other things, you know. And and uh, if you're relying on clues, the whole point is that you have to understand them, and you have to entrust yourself to them uh, well in advance of whatever whatever it is you're in quest of, which is so cool. And we do that all the time, you know. We do it all the time.
0: Well, and one of the the dictums that I've heard from you or dicta is, um, you know, that knowing is risky right? Um, And so you're describing this as, but that we step out into the world uh, and we lean into clues in order to, with the hope of understanding uh, the real world in some new way.
1: Yeah. And risky confidence, risky, responsible Mm. confidence. And confidence is actually a richer uh, artistry. Uh, And again, Mm. if you're going to be a baseball outfielder, you know, that risky, responsible confidence is what describes that. And it's risky, responsible confidence that opens reality to you. You know, if you can, if you can play professional baseball and you actually get scored errors, if you make a mistake, I mean, that would not be, that would not pertain to me. You know what I'm saying? So, so, uh, uh, To see some outfielder hurdle themselves across, you know, many feet or ram into the wall or something and and field that ball, you know, it's just, well, we love it. We we rewatch those, right? We we love it, but that's- Mm -hmm. that's Yeah, the highlight reels, yeah. Yeah, risky confidence.
0: Highlight reels are not some dude standing in an (laughs) outfield. Right. (laughs) It's him (laughs) practicing the risky part of the endeavor, yeah. Yeah the yeah. risky, confident in part.
1: I think, you know, every Sunday people watch football and football is just so glaringly, obviously subsidiary focal integration. <laughs> you know, it's recli- oh, yeah. Re- yeah. relying on clues to uh, uh, focus on and invite a pattern, you know? It's like there's there's the near, the foreground, the, the O-line and the, you know, all your guys, I don't know all the names, but you know, an, an artist quarterback like we saw two of in the Super Bowl, you know, it just they're attuned subsidiarily to the whole dynamic moving thing and then they achieve this this breakthrough of artistry and you know hit their guy down there in the in the end zone. That's beauty.
0: I, <laughs> I just love this conversation so far because I'm like, has Western Pennsylvania done something to Esther yes. Meek? Uh because <laughs> like it, you know, in my mind, there's this oh, extremely stories. shrewd philosopher Esther oh, yeah. Meek, who I sat in a in a seminar with as a graduate student, just like awestruck at your mastery of all of this philosophy, and then <laughs> yeah, and then now it's all it's all sports illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that those are mutually exclusive from one another, but I just love how it's all turned into the sports illustrations.
1: Well, you know but, what? Um back in the day yeah, I was ahead. using magic eyes and and nobody now oh, knows more. Yeah.
0: I know. I have a whole book of them back here that I use with students, yeah. but they it's it's you have to reteach them from scratch. Yeah. Um maybe I should ask then, um what because when I met you, you were still kind of uh a homemaker philosopher working your way out into the academic world again after, you know, uh, being out of it for a while. I don't know mm-hmm. if you'd ex- consider what you are doing being out of it for a while, but not in the <laughs> formal academic world of presenting papers and doing all that weird stuff that yeah. we do. Um, how did you get into philosophy in the first place?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I, 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 uh, I, Around age thirteen, found myself with some very odd questions that I was really so embarrassed of that I didn't even tell anybody. Especially as my mm. family practically lived at church, and one of them was, "How do I know that God exists?" And the other mm. was, "I really." The bigger one was, "How do I know there's anything outside my mind?" And I I, I thought that was the weirdest thing. That which is why I didn't tell anybody, um, but I had. I felt that I was only certain of ideas in my head. And because I had ideas in my uh, head, they literally were blocking the way for me to get outside of them to see if they match what was out there. And so it was like the whole thing felt like this big screen, and I had no proof for the thing that I most needed proof for.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, like I said, I was... Th- I was 13 and and I was, you know, I've, I've never had, you know, anything but self doubt. But then um, what happened was um, my mother at that point was working in a Christian bookstore and she always brought home the first editions of books and read them, uh, she being cool like that. And I followed her red pencil underlinings through Francis Schaeffer's The God Who Was There. And mm. my conclusion was. Oh oh I mean it's a difficult book and it's you know you know but anyway my dis- yeah, my conclusion He rambles was, a bit. <laughs> my questions were not sin or dumb they were philosophical and responses to them had shaped whole cultural epochs across the disciplines. And that fired my uh, love of the interdisciplinary including artistry and science and all of that. And and it made me realize that my questions were philosophical. Then it was a few more years before I found out that you could actually study philosophy. And when I hmm. did, the change happened in 12 hours. <laughs> and wow. I have never, I've never looked back. <laughs> because it's, and again, you know, I, I thought I surely wasn't smart enough to do this, but I felt morally obligated because these were the most important questions. And I, you know, it's not that I don't love Jesus and believe the Bible and all all that, but if you have no proof for the world outside your head, you got some work to do, <laughs> you know. So, so I, and I also felt because of the Schaefer, what Schaefer had shown, uh, that w- when I found out you could study philosophy, I felt like it would be the thing that would help me integrate, and and all the other things too. I also felt all these years I've taught logic that. um you know, whatever the particular argument is that you're looking at, the fundamental premises might not even have been expressed, and they're philosophical commitments, you know, so you what, why, it's like, why bother to have the argument? You need to go get down and figure out what the assumptions are.
0: So I, uh, th- it's, I mean, it's always fascinating. I tell people whenever I run into people who are like really worried about whether the world outside their head exists, I say like, Hey, I know somebody <laughs> who has a book, uh, about how to make contact with reality and how to confidently yes. know that you have done so. Right. Yeah. Um, cause for me, this is never an issue. Uh, but like, uh, but I know for some, it's a real issue for some people and you're one of those people yeah, who opened me up to it.
1: Different ways the modernist mindset manifests you know in, in in you know and i'm sure if if i were the one interviewing you you could put your finger on kind of the 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 wreckage uh in your own life hmm. of of this outlook so it just oh, yeah. not take the foreign minded but
0: um let me tell you a story and then see how you react <laughs> i was i don't know if i've ever told you this but um I was at a conference in Jerusalem. It was like a workshop, and there was a physicist from MIT. So, he's an associate professor at MIT in, in physics, Jeremy England. And he was supposed to give a paper on Jewish philosophical theology from a physicist's perspective, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be an interesting paper. He stood up there and essentially said, I'm not going to talk about my paper. You can read it on your own time. Uh, I want to, <laughs> this is so, it was so, it was almost comical. He said, I want to tell you what my colleagues think that we're, we're doing as scientists, and then I want to tell you what I actually think that we're doing as scientists. And he began to lay out, essentially point for point, what Michael Polanyi argued in Personal Knowledge uh, as to what he actually thought was going on. Like, you know, my my friends, they they, they think that we're cl- clinically and coldly collecting facts and putting them in a pile and stacking them up and sifting through the pile and coming up with theories, et cetera, the old classical view of of scientism. Um, but I think we're actually just a group of people who are, he wouldn't, he didn't say these words, but traditioned and biased in a particular way to see significance. And he, he just laid it out almost perfectly and uh, almost a Kuhnian, uh, Polanyian view of science. Um, and afterwards I went up to him and I said, that was pretty amazing that you did that whole spiel and you never mentioned like Thomas Kuhn or Michael Polanyi the entire time. And he said, who? <laughs> <laughs> And it was being entirely sincere. He'd never heard of either of them. And I said, well, Thomas Kuhn, he's emeritus professor at MIT in the history of philosophy of science. Like he, he had no idea. He really thought he had stumbled onto like the secret sauce that, that scientists yeah. were telling themselves these big lies about what they're doing. Um, and I ran into this when I was giving a talk to some nuclear engineers of all places once, some Christian nuclear engineers. And I said, here's what people will tell you what they're doing as scientists, but here's something like closer to what they actually are doing. And they agreed. They said, but then one guy asked me. He said, "But why does my stuff work, right?" Um, And he he said, "I hear you. I think you're right. What you described—that's a myth. But what the other thing you described is actually what we do." So uh, my only answer was, and I want to hear your result, uh, your answer to this too. Is my answer was, well, I think the reason why your stuff works is because you constantly check what you're doing against the real world. You don't live in a romantic fairyland, but you have to like check it as to what, you know, the reality will kick, as you say, reality gives as good as it gets. It'll kick back and tell you, no, not so fast. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder, A, I wonder what would be your fuller response to that? And then uh, B, do you think Christians live in reality? (laughs) 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 To ask you some small... Some well, boutique I'll tell questions. You what my
1: response would be, and then I'd like to talk about reality, and then I'd like to consider the, the do we live in reality question.
0: third. Okay. Uh,
1: my first response is there's nothing wrong with doing science experiments. Uh, what's wrong is, is the philosophical move of making that the paradigm of knowledge. Hmm so, what uh Polani taught us uh is that we rely on clues and indwell them to invite and shape and uh be blessed by a transformative integrative pattern uh, which is the moment of discovery and and uh it and you know I have argued in uh loving to know another book that. Uh, reality is kind of like, pers- it's person-like. And really, if it's person-like, what we should be doing is inviting the real. And mm. uh, uh, that means kind of more like uh, a wedding, you pl- pledge to love, honor, and obey. <laughs> and then you're, mm. if your graced reality self-discloses. Well, it's like that. So good science experiments fall into the uh, my description of inviting the real. And what what Polanyi, uh, another phrase that Polanyi gave us was destructive analysis. And so hmm. in subsidiary focal integration, think, you know, golfing. Uh, if you uh, revert or the bike riding, if you revert to focus on what you should be subsidiarily dwelling, the whole pattern goes away. Right. And sometimes you kind of have to do that. You have to memorize the the period. The, um, multiplication table. You have to learn Hebrew. It's uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? Until you get to the place where you can wear it, right? Mm -hmm. But then you see that whole realm of the subsidiary, let's talk about, you know, wearing Hebrew as you do, (laughs) you know, um, uh, it actually can be trained and made better. It can be mistaken. It can need to be fixed. It, it it can get so good that um, there's artistry in it, right? Hmm. But that all comes of seeing that as subsidiary. And so I would say you honor the real in your, your scientific work by that care, but you have to see the whole thing as subs- subsidiary artistry to invite the real. Does that make sense? Hmm.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, it makes sense to me. Uh, I just want to clarify. I often use a term kind of like when we're focusing, the focal point that you've been saying, This uh, the focal point is like learning grammar and vocab. Um, but there's a point where it has to cross over into fluency, where the yeah, words come.
1: This switching to make it subsidiary.
0: Yeah, the sub- sub- subsidiary is more like fluency, focal is more like focusing on okay, I need to remember what this word means in this language. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um so now I'm really interested in what you have to say about reality.
1: <laughs> well, I I do and this has grown this this really is the main theme of my life because I was the baby skeptic, right? <laughs> so mm really the thing I did my dissertation on in Michael Polanyi was this magical sentence where he would say, you know, you've made contact with reality when you have this unspecifiable sense (laughs) of an inexhaustive range of indeterminate future manifestations. And, uh, you know, the, the sense of future prospects. And you actually, he actually talked about the discoverer kind of, navigating in light of the yet-to-be-known, you know, because they can have a sense of, of getting closer to it. And then when when reality shows up, you have this, I've called it an IFM effect, indeterminate future manifestations. This, this sense of, it, it, like, it, we sense its reality because we sense these possibilities. And you can expect for it to turn up all all over the place. So, In my trying to make sense of that in longing to know, I said, it's not so much that reality answers our questions as that it explodes them. So it's Mm. like, you know, you've made contact with reality when it kind of walks in and takes over. You know, um, yeah, you can think of examples, tsunamis and
0: things. (laughs)
1: That right. just kind of walk over. You, you walk find over
0: yourself to, in the woods with a wild am, animal, right?
1: Right, right. And, and you're all of a sudden, the, it
0: gets to determine. You know, yeah,
1: you might remember in longing to know the whole story of the copperhead in my, right, you know, behind right. my house, right? So that's that's a great example that when I when I finally picked out what my daughters were there saying, look at, you know, reality shifted. Just it just shifted in that moment. That's how you know you've made contact with reality. So So, I went on to argue that reality is kind of person-like in that way. You know, if you have a a face-to-face encounter, you know, you you are changed. And that's how reality is. That's kind of how you know you've made contact with reality. And so in our modernist, our defective modern mindset with regard to knowledge, there's also a defective modern mindset with regard to the real. And I, this, in a way, this comes first. So that I did, did not trust reality outside my mind, you know, I kind of was in the Zechariah position, oh yeah? Well, mm-hmm. that's a part of our legacy in modernity, that we have been disconnected from the real. We effectively, you know the word acedia, you know, we effectively mm-hmm. are living out a refusal to consent to the real and and so we have depersonalized the real uh we have reduced its richness so to justify our abusive commodification <laughs> i have to say you know i mean this is all the kind of the power play of modernity which i think mm-hmm. the postmoderns understood and we still do right so so right. um well, I think- And can I stop you
0: there just uh, for clarification? Sorry. Um, because I think what you said is a key move that most people don't catch. They think of modernism and postmodernism, if they think of them at all, they think of postmodernism about truth is out the window. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like the postmodern move is actually like, no, power is now. Now we're going to admit that it's been power this whole time. What
1: is the crucifixion if it is not a question of power? <laughs> You right. know, uh, there's there's lot there's lots of things there.
0: Talking about Christians in reality, my simplified view would be that Christians kind of made their bed with modernism, uh, which is what made postmodernism the double boogeyman. Even postmodernism, has it's its own philosophical issues that we want to work through. But uh, they truth is easy; it's domesticatable. It's something I can keep in, I can control. Um and if it's actually about power, which is the postmodern critique in some ways, um, that's what really makes Christians nervous is that uh, we can't just tell people what's true and then they have to listen and then we have to do things in light of that um, so where do you put where do you put this uh, the the Christian um, uh, Interaction with, and also just like the Christians' response to reality. Do you think Christians are inviting the real on the whole? You know, feel free to critique and celebrate what's good and maybe not so good.
1: Well, um, in my adult years, I've I've been in what's known as the Reformational tradition, which you know I met you in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And one of the things around Geneva that we would would say a lot is we need a strong doctrine of creation. So, and, you know, I'm reading your book these days, getting ready to write a paper on it. And, you know, you, you make the point about creation plus, you know, you've of mm. harking back to creation, all of that. Well, I, I've come to feel like we need a stronger doctrine of creation. Um, hmm. I, I feel that what Protestant believers are missing is metaphysics they don't they don't i mean one of the the modernist uh, prejudice outlawed lots of things and philosophy was one of it it's it's like intrinsically anti-philosophical and um uh i to to kind of re-say it in in maybe more accessible ways from a biblical point of view it's like it's, it, it ought to be the case that we can hardly get over Genesis
0: 1-1. Hmm.
1: That it's like, that is stunning. And I think that, uh, you know, in the reformational tradition, you know, we at least we try to say we need to put creation before fall uh, redemption and restoration. I feel like the way it often plays out is you show your spirituality by exalting the evil. And then anything Mm -hmm. good has to be cast in in kind of as a, a, a response to brokenness. Uh, And Lord knows there's lots and lots and lots of brokenness, but there's not the kind of the simple exuberance (laughs) about the fact that anywhere my eye looks, it's the word of the Lord and it's showing up and it's there and it's so cool. I mean, the fact that it exists Hmm. is absolutely stunning. I'm all for the incarnation being the most cool thing. Uh, but I, I think historically, uh, you know, and I, you may know this better than I, but historically the incarnation is what helped us see that creation itself is, is a cool thing. (laughs) You know, it's like the incarnation showed us how to delight in things. And uh, I, so one person I've been I've read in recent years is Michael Hanby, who's best friends with uh, DC Schindler. I'm a DC Schindler fangirl, but um, both of these guys are philosophers, contemporary Christian metaphysicians. And uh, in Hanby's book on uh, science, you know, he says that uh, really uh, an account of particular things is distinctively at home in a Christian uh Approach, so I, I honest, I'm arguing in my new book that we have dismissed the the kind of the not magic. I don't know what the right word is uh, the, the the primacy of things, hmm. and and um, so I think we need to get back to honoring that. I don't know. I'm arguing we're gonna have we need to be, get back to uh, what I'm calling a metaphysics of childhood. The people that do this are the the babies. <laughs> hmm.
0: that's, that's interesting. I was I was reading some stuff for a book uh, I'm working on recently that's <laughs> talked about so many different things that children do that we lose uh, as you get older. <laughs> and, and it's wonder, like kindness to strangers, which comes really naturally to most children, but gets snapped out of them at some point. Um, but that a lot of them have to do with what you called inviting the real. Just like, oh, I mm-hmm. wonder what this person has to say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, or I saying, wonder what this is. Look at
1: that. Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. show show a baby a, a, a new object and they're in yeah. awe.
0: <laughs> or my favorite one, I'll cry every time I watch these videos, but um, a baby who has a, a cochlear implant put on and then they can hear for the very first time their mother's voice and you're like okay i can't oh, i can't yeah. i can't anymore <laughs> it's so beautiful yeah.
1: there's one out there yeah. about the, of them putting glasses on this little baby oh yeah i don't know if you've seen that one but it's it's similar you can hardly you can hardly stand looking at it it's so beautiful
0: or even i know you love this one too they have the, there's a certain type of color blindness that can be corrected with a particular type of glasses and you know these old men that get given these glasses as a gift, and they put them on, and they just instantly start weeping uh, from yeah. the beauty of reality. That's
1: so beautiful. So I I do feel that our uh, our well intended theology, which is entitled, I, I think it's good theology. It's but it's entitled to exuberance in the real and and modeling the 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 person likeness. Of the real and the interpersonhoodness of our involvement with it, I I think that we human persons were designed for communion with the real. We were designed to be lovers of the real, and uh, I, I I think we're downplaying that because we we skip too fast to Genesis three, but I think we do that because we haven't done our metaphysical homework.
0: And we, we can also downplay it. This is Nietzsche's critique that Christianity has just become a world fleeing theology. It's all about yeah. escaping this world. And I mean, I don't think he's correct in this critique, but he is critiquing. A lot of people do believe that the goal is just to get into heaven. I and,
1: agree. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so prevalent, you know, I, uh, I've been reading about beauty, you know, and, and artists with regard to beauty and, Somehow it sounds spiritual and religious to make it all about God and not about this dark, broken world. And so be- mm. it, beauty, you know, there's a crack in any, everything. That's how the light gets in, which is a lovely song. And it's true. But, hmm. but it also can, if you don't watch it, it, it denigrates this stuff. Hmm. And, and I don't think that's our first position in longing to know there's that chapter called back with reality and uh i so when you have trust of reality and philosophy that's called realism <laughs> so if it, the the position of realism is uh, that you affirm that there's a real objective world independently of your mind which was like my big question right but uh, i have to say that even when i wrote the dissertation And then, so that would have been in, you know, 1980 something, and and then Longing to Know came along in 2003. Uh, Even then, even through that process, my skepticism has lingered. So there came this point, uh, I've written some books since then, and one of them is called Little Manual for Knowing, and that came out in 2014, and I was teaching the book, and I realized I had uttered, like written in there, something about trusting reality. And I went, did I say that? Am I, is it, is reality going to get me? You know, is it going to like come back and bite me? That was my, that was my response. And, you know, to, to get to the place where I now feel like I'm, I call it exuberant realism. I like the image of, you know, splashing about in a in one of these uh hot springs that has a bottomless hole to aquamarine <laughs> subterranean depths i mean that's what i picture and and uh, so splashing about in the real which i would call philosophizing but uh in any case uh it all the ingredients of that are in longing to know but it's over the years and maybe being a grandparent <laughs> that's hmm. kind of Helped me to to shift so that that I feel like trusting this this unbelievably lively reality, this dynamically overflowing existence that is this incredible implication of Genesis one one. It's taken me a while to get to that.
0: Well, thank God we can benefit from that road you've traveled ahead of us and hopefully we can arrive there with you sooner rather than later. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Esther Meek, uh, who's been a personal mentor of mine over the last couple of decades. Uh, Thank you for your wisdom and your guidance.
1: You're so welcome. Thank you for helping me mark the milestone of longing to know turning 20.
0: Yes. Happy 20th anniversary to longing to know and looking forward to anniversaries of future books. Thank you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.